Welcome to the Sporting History Podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. I'm Jeff Levitz, the Secretary of the BSSH, but this week it's another podcast takeover with Connor Heffernan, the postgrad and early career rep for the BSSH, interviewing Andrew Howe of the University of Texas in Austin. Andrew is a PhD candidate in physical culture and sports studies at the H.J. Lutcher Stark Centre for Physical Culture and Sports of the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education. I'm glad I've got that out of the way. British listeners may also have met him at the BSSH's conference, where he was given papers the last couple of years. Connor talks to Andrew about his research into the history of sport in the People's Republic of China during the Mao years, ping-pong diplomacy in France playing basketball, uh, so not in America playing ping-pong, although that is mentioned, and the interesting experience of researching in Chinese archives. They also mention the grants that are available to BSSH members to conduct research overseas and to attend conferences. So for more details of those grants, go to the Society's revamped website at sportinhistory.org. And don't forget, tomorrow, that is Monday the 2nd of December 2019, for those of you listening in the future, Professor Kay Schiller will be giving a paper at the Institute of Historical Research here in London, and he'll be discussing the career of Alex Nathan, dubbed the fastest Jew in Germany, who was competing for Germany between the wars. That seminar will start at 6pm, so do come along if if you're free. Go to the IHR website at history.ac.uk to find out more. But that's enough from me. Let's go stateside to see how Connor got along with Andrew. Okay, hi everyone and welcome to our second Across the Pond BSSH Sport and History podcast. I have the honour of welcoming Andrew Howe onto the podcast. Andrew is a graduate student in physical culture and sport at the University of Texas. So I'll let Andrew begin by introducing himself and talking about what he's currently doing his PhD research on. Oh gosh, I'm never good at introducing myself, but hi, uh, hello everyone, um, I'm Andrew. Um, uh, I was born in China, I came to um, the University of Texas to do my master's in sport management and somehow, um, well, you could say that, oh gosh, I feel like I'm buttering up, but <laughs> my advisor, my, my current advisor, Dr. Hunt, uh, Thomas Hunt, somehow reignited my passion for academia and um, we um, he supervised my master's thesis um, and then it was quite a blast well at least uh, you know um, in terms of the experience and um, and he you know offered that olive branch and I just clinched it and um, now I'm here doing my um, PhD Uh, hopefully it's going to be the last year um, I'm currently, of course, hiding in the woods. Not quite, because I still have teaching assignments. Mm. Um, but I'm mainly hiding in the woods. You know, co- by woods, I mean coffee shops. Um, trying to uh, finish up my dissertation and also, you know, applying for jobs. Um, my dissertation focuses on um, focused fo- focuses on uh, the Chinese elite sport. Uh, it's political history during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, which took place largely from 1966 to 1976. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, 
of course, it didn't happen overnight. So there were many events leading up to that. But I was ma- I- I'm mainly going to focus on those 10 years. And yeah. what brought you to that specific period and that specific topic? Um, so first of all, of course, I read and speak Chinese. So, uh, which helps, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that's something that, uh, both, um, Tom, Tommy, uh, Dr. Hunt and I think that we should, you know, put into use. And, um, I've always felt that, you know, the cultural revolution was one of the most, um, um, disastrous political movements in human history. And, um, you know, because of, all sorts of reasons that we kind of know, mm. um, you know, it's never quite possible to reveal uh, the trauma and um, scars uh, entirely. So, you know, now that I'm at a less critical position in the situation, actually, you know, I'm not physically there. Yeah. So um, actually, um, is less costly for me to focus on this and, you know, try to, uh, examine it from an angle that's not that sensitive and um, there happens to be uh, you know a lot of archival well-kept archival documents um, in the IOC in Lausanne Switzerland um, and of course you know um, regarding to relative uh, relevant events um, in Canada and you know all sorts of places in America mm-hmm. so yeah um, so course, uh, first of all, every Chinese, then um, there are sufficient archival documents to support, uh, to support my research. And, um, and of course, I'm interested. And the last one is that I feel it's, um, it has its own value. Yeah. When, when it comes to doing a project like this, you know, um, trying to add a little bit um, humanness into my research. Yeah. Where does sport fit into the cultural revolution so like what does the study of sport in this disaster so, yes um, so of course um as a political movement a radical political movement that took place in um uh, you know authoritarian state uh, you could see that you could say that everybody every single citizen or you know whatever they consider whoever they didn't consider citizen uh was in, uh, in, in, impacted negatively of course mostly um and um sports was in a very interesting position in that at the onset of the cultural revolution sport uh, especially you know elite, elite sport elite athletes when they, um their international their participation in international competi- competition was used uh as um as an instrument to you know propagate mm. uh the maoism and um and um, they call them a Mao Zedong thought, um, you know, some sort of ideology that basically worships Mao. And um, very soon, at the beginning of, uh, actually, at, uh, towards the end of 1966, you know, that's actually six months, uh, half a year after uh, the, what, uh, when we considered the Cultural Revolution officially started. Mm-hmm. Um, everything just went into chaos and um, all the official sport events, sporting events mostly got canceled, suspended. And, you know, uh, even for the elite athletes, their practice was suspended. Um, everybody had to participate in, you know, all day, uh, you know, either political study or um, had to 
uh, work on farms and factories with the farmers and um, with the workers. Mm. Um, so, you know, basically, um, and uh, the officials, um, I think, as far as I can, I can recall, many of them had already been, you know, persecuted one by one. Um, and um, of course, then later on in 1986, I think, I think there were three very famous coaches, one of whom was actually the first, uh, was China's first world champion uh, in ping pong. Uh, in all sport, yeah. actually, but he played ping pong. And then later on, he became uh, the head coach for the women's team, women's national team. And uh, he killed himself. And his two um, fellow coaches also committed suicide. Uh, so that was actually quite astonishing to, you know, the state leaders back then. And one of them, uh, Chou Lai, maybe you have heard of him. Yeah. Um, I think he gradually realized the severity uh, of this whole matter that went down. And um, gradually in 1970, uh, you know, they got, uh, began to put Chinese sport back in order little by little. Uh, of course, the cultural revolution was still going on, um, but, uh, but the, the darkest days had passed. And then uh, once we get into 1970s, you must have heard of the ping pong dipo- diplomacy, which mm-hmm. was not actually, which didn't only take place between China and the, and the United States. Uh, actually, China used the ping pong and other sports as a um, diplomatic um, means to uh, show goodwill and, you know, um, to uh, gain rapprochement with other nations even before the Cultural Revolution started. But of course, what we, what we know the most about is that episode that took place uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, in sharp contrast with what took place in late 1960s, uh, actually, the 1970s was, was, uh, was um, really almost like a honeymoon period for Chinese sport. Uh, it, uh, it was reinstated at this, as this official way to do diplo- uh, diplomacy. Yeah. And um, uh, the Asian Games Federation, for the first time, admitted the Chinese Olymp- Olympic Committee um, and expelled the one that was um that they previously recognized in Taiwan and uh, that was in 1974 and China, the Chinese delegation participated in the Asian Games for the first time uh in Tehran of course uh, you know with the help of the Asian sport leaders from mainly from Japan ironically and um Iran um and then later on um through these uh, through these efforts um Actually, China began to gradually gain a permission uh, from the international federations of individual sports uh, to play with uh, their members. Because before there was this ban that, you know, if you're not a member, you cannot play official games with us, right? Um, and then later on in 1976, which was, you know, I said the last year of the Cultural Revolution. So, um, um, but by that time, China and Canada had already established diplomatic relations. And of course, Beijing exerted enormous pressure to mm-hmm. Ottawa and made them not allow Taiwanese athletes to participate in the Montreal Games, because uh, Taiwan was still um, the Chinese Olympic uh, Chinese Olympic Committee based in Taiwan was still a member um, in the Olympic movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
that that incident ended with uh with the Taiwanese uh Taiwanese's boycott actually, um and then after that of course um three years later, Beijing replaced Taipei, um at the IOC and you know um in the nineteen eighties everything just went 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 upward yeah. for Chinese yeah, and I'm interested in the kind of reestablishment of sport during yeah. the Cultural Revolution. Was there any inkling of like the mass gymnastic routines that would have been found in like the Soviet Union? Like I know Mao published a book on physical culture at some point in the thirties and forties. Was there any move towards like state gymnastic routines, or is it more conventional international sports? What will be shown at the Olympic Games? Um, interesting. Interestingly enough, actually, in the darkest day, darkest days that I talked mm. uh, talked about earlier, you know, late nineteen nineteen sixties, that's actually what the athletes mostly, you know, like, and also the students in sport university that uh, universities that that's what they did. Okay. They they were mainly doing you know the group, uh the group, um group gymnastics routines, um which you can still see in North Korea these days of course, yeah. and actually you know it it remained as part of, uh it remained part, it, sorry it remained as a staple of the Chinese sport but of course the elite sport uh, the elite athletes they're not going to do that anymore hmm. so you know it's mainly like or- organizing s- students and youth to do it. Um, but of course, the, um, 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 what we call it artistic gymnastics, right? Yeah. Uh, that's the Olympic competition. Um, actually, they were pretty good. Um, the Chinese athletes were pretty good before um, the Cultural Revolution went on, and um, at least they could they could you know beat gymnasts from mainly uh, from the third world. Yeah. So you know. They were surely, they are pro- They were probably not the, t- the best in the world, but they could surely. They, they were of a standard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would speculate that, um, there was this legacy, um, you know, of the the Sino-Soviet, uh, friendship back then, but also, uh, there was this huge breakdown, um, of the bilateral relations between China and Soviet Union in nineteen sixty nine. That's also part of the reason that, you know, the Chinese state leaders began to, um, began to seek rapprochement with the West, hmm. and that's how sport came into play, as an instrument to show goodwill. And the sports that they chose was there any tension around, like certain activities being seen as overtly. Western or do they welcome uh, a broad church of activities? Like, was there any concern? So Alec, one of your fellow PhD candidates, yeah. is looking at rowing in Germany and how, in some quarters, it was seen as kind of distinctly British, and then yeah. it, in other quarters, it was accepted and it was turned into like a German activity in its own right. Were there any tensions in China about? Participating in say like Western. You mean generally or just back in, in that? like it back then? So in your back research, then. have you found any tension with? We're not going to do like soccer because soccer is British, or we're not going to do basketball because that's American, and we don't want to. Not really, actually. Okay, that's interesting. Um, for example, um, tennis is my favorite sport, and mm. I actually paid special attention to you know the Chinese participation in tennis events. Back then, you would think that you know, because tennis is such a uh, bourgeoisie yeah. sport, right? And you would think that it's a typical, a typically Western, 
sport, but actually, you know, the Chinese athletes seem to participate in um, the events internationally just fine. Yeah. Uh, of course, before that, that was before um, that was at the very beginning of the Cultural Revolution. But then, like uh, like I said, all sport activity, uh, all, all elite sport sporting activities just went down, mm. uh, got suspended. You know, it was total chaos. So um, I. And of course, there were people being persecuted for, you know, any sort of um, Western connection. Mm. And, you know, pianists, they, ha- they li- literally had to um, smash their piano just to show that, okay, I'm, going, I'm cutting ties with my Western connection. So um, you would guess that, you know, the tennis players, uh, I, I, so far I haven't really seen um, any, any uh, documents on that, mm. but uh, I would... It would be reasonable to think that you know those tennis athletes they would have to um, at least hide or you know yeah. destroy their rackets just to show their determination to um, and loyalty to Mao. And um, on that note, actually, um, the three co- ping pong coaches who committed suicide, um, I think two or one of them actually. Um, came to represent China back from Hong Kong, which was still a British colony back then. And that was considered as Western connection as well. That, that was part of his alleged crimes. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, um, to win a world championship, that's, that's even a stronger Western, uh, a Western connection. And, yeah. you know, that's, that, that was basically a, the atrocity that went on. Yeah. And coming out of the cultural revolution when sport becomes this great like ideological and diplomatic tool, were, what sports were privileged or did, was there an overt preference to like fund certain sports more than others or was there more attention placed on like ping pong rather than gymnastics? Like was there a state preference for uh, who did well and in what sports? Uh, you mean back then? Or? Yeah, back then. Back then, of course, ping pong. Even though the elite sports, um, you know, came into a halt, um, you know, the mat sport was actually kind of emphasized because, you know, all the youth, they, they were sent to the countryside to, um, to do farm work and or into the factory. So, you know, in their spare time, they actually could play some sort of sport. Um, I don't I don't really specialize. I, I'm not really focusing on mat sport right now, but mm. I've read certain uh, literature on that. And um, apparently ping pong, because, you know, it's cheap. Uh, it was cheap to play it back then. And also the equipment um, was sort of easy to acquire as well. Um, and basketball. Mm. Um, basketball was really popular back then. Um, I would say that soccer, sorry, football. Sorry, <laughs> football. Um, yeah. How did I let America change me? I like know, that, right? it's awful. You're yep. a Liverpool fan. <laughs> this is dreadful. You know what football The one that you kick with your feet all the time. Uh, proper football. Uh, yeah, the proper football. Um, would, was pretty uh, popular back then as mm. well, I would say. And badminton. Yeah. Um, that, that's, uh, of course, there, there should be other sports as well, but, mm. you know. Uh, I can't quite and athletics and fields of course you know? yeah, yeah. Okay. and the, so aside from ping pong were there any other sporting tours or like 
sporting diplomatic events or did they send the basketball team to oh, yes. France to establish connections yes. there how did you know that oh, very, yeah just have a deep deep interest in you know yeah, French I, basketball from the 1970s yeah actually I mentioned it earlier um, this year at at BSSH which I will ask you yeah, about. yeah <laughs> I, I mentioned it um, we were talking about you know um, uh, back then this, um, the governmental uh, will and Athens actions and um, actually, in 1966, um, China and France had just established diplomatic relations. And um, that year, for some reason, was, you know, like full of cultural exchanges. Mm. And the, the French first sent their men's and women's... Oh, no, sorry, my bad. The Chinese first sent their um, men's and women's national basketball team to, Fran uh, to, to France. And later on, French, uh, the French men's national team came to visit Beijing and you know other Chinese cities. Um, my my guess, my guess. Um, I just got a um a film role of uh L'Equipe. Mm -hmm. I haven't really you know got to read it yet. Um, and because you know just reading French is like a huge um pain. In my head right now but <laughs> <laughs> but i will get to do uh, i'll get to do it soon yeah. um so my guess is that uh, first of all neither french team was performing particularly well mm -hmm. uh, in the 1960s they just somehow went into a um you know just a down downhill uh, in terms of their performance so you know they probably needed more funding and you know, uh, happens to be um, the uh, who was the the president back then? Um, I think I would say. I would say um, oh the the god. Possibly my knowledge of history Maybe. kind of stops at thirty nine. So oh gosh, let's go to Gaulle and then someone will angrily send me an email if I'm wrong. The the Gaulle um I I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I can't. We, we both look like deer in the headlights right now. Right. The French, <laughs> French president. Yeah, the French. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he just, you know, sort of uh, deviated a little bit from this Western alliance. Cause, yes. Yeah. Because apparently, apparently there was this like fissure between um, in the United States and France in terms of uh, military yeah. alliance and stuff. So, um, so yeah, that's what took took place. Uh, mm. The French reached reached out to China first and. Um, there was all those cultural exchange events going on, and of course the basketball team um, visits um, were a huge deal. Mm. Yeah, and actually the Chinese beat um, beat the French teams several times. Really? Yeah. Uh, how is that reported in China? Were you able to see anything on that yet, or is that? At first, it was really nothing. Just you know, like ordinary report of the events. Later on, you know, as the Cultural Revolution went deeper and deeper into itself. Uh, you could see that uh, the victory was totally because of, um, uh, you know, flexibly learning and using Mao Zedong thought. And, yeah. um, you know, and of course, on of the court, when, uh, on the stands, you see the audience during breaks and intervals, they would like be led to recite excerpts from uh, the Little Red Book that you might have heard of. Mm -hmm. um, it's like uh, quotations uh, Chairman Mao. Yeah, yeah. Um, they will be led to do that as well. Um, so you know, it 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 was gradually more and more, um, uh, politicized. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 
Actually, something that I probably should ask you about is the sources that you get, they're primarily outside of China, is that right? Or are you... Um, actually, a huge chunk of it was, uh, they, were from China, uh, they were from China. I, um, of course, you know, it's impossible to get official documents um, from the Chinese, um, you know, authorities. I tried once, I tried real hard, I got a plane, I went to the Chinese foreign ministry. I actually did some digging online first, mm-hmm. and um, the, the foreign ministry, uh, minister, of, minister of foreign affairs actually. No, it doesn't matter, and you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so they had an archive open to public, but the address that they listed on the website was the one that was for internal use only. Okay. So I tried, to enter their, um, their building, but of course, you know, the guards basically just, what what are you trying to do here? Yeah. <laughs> we need introductory letter, mm-hmm. um, and he sent me to the other post to get one, but the other post you need to go back there and get something. So you know, basically they were kicking me around. Yeah, and then I called inside and they said, okay, you came to a wrong wrong archive uh, it's like actually in the building behind but even that they still wanted the introductory lecture which is you know like normal practice right yeah. um they actually let me in i didn't really have introductory letter because you know they preferred in chinese and mm. you know with a stamp, stamp. Yeah. and i couldn't possibly get it and now i learned what i could you know possibly trick the admin in my department to do it yeah. but back then i couldn't possibly think imagine that so um, what I did was you, I used my uh, student ID mm-hmm. and they said, okay, that kind of proves your um, identity, right? So yeah. they sent me upstairs and uh, the entire reading room was empty. Um, I went inside. There were two ladies like with, with really, really nice smiles on their face. And the first thing they said, oh, we really, really need a formal introductory letter. You have to present it to us. I was like, sure. And uh, I asked, do you prefer, you know, from institution overseas or domestic? Mm-hmm. One? We surely prefer domestic one. And, you know, if it's from overseas, it has to be English and Chinese both. And there has to be a stamp on both. Um, I was like, okay, I sure don't have it right now. I just have to get another one. And then just when I turned around to leave and she actually asked me, oh, what years do you want? I was like, um, 65, 66. And she said, oh, sorry, our archives, our document, documents are only declassified up to um, 1955. Really? Yes. Okay. Um, well, it was really weird because, you know, they actually declassify and then reclassify. So yeah. um, you just, and, you know, there's not really a phone number that you can call all the time. So unless you're based in Beijing and, mm. you know, unless you're prepared to stay there for, six months it's um it's probably not an easy feat um so um i give up on that oh actually in terms of the declassify um declassification and reclassification thing there was actually a really nice book that i would recommend if you're interested in cold war (laughs) history that is not you know centered on the united states Mm. there was this um book called the cold war the shadow cold war Uh, It was um, about um, how China and the Soviet Union fought for allegiance of third world countries. Um, Oh gosh, I can't quite... Can you remember who wrote it? I think it was Evangelist... No, not Evangelist. Oh my God. I have to look up that. uh, Look that up and, you know, 
probably like you give you a link somewhere yeah, else. Yeah, it'll be fine. No yeah. Um, so I went to the Chinese National Library instead. Mm. That was open to public, and um, they uh, the state sport commission back then had two official publications. Um, one was a newspaper. The other one was a monthly a monthly magazine. So um, that's. Uh, these two were the two publications that I could access uh, up to 1966 because their publication was suspended l- late that year as well. Mm-hmm. And the publication, the publishing was not resumed until 1972 to 73. So, you know, you have that gap. Um, so that's the Chinese. Uh, and of course, uh, I know there are secondary sources, but, yeah, you know, um, but first of all, there were official publications and, you know, that's pretty much, they pretty much uh, public, publicate the, the official announcements mm. and policies. And you could see all those athletes trying to write uh, articles to show their allegiance to the, the great yeah. leader. So that kind of, it was kind of, to be honest, it was kind of fun to to read it. Of course, like after you read like all those articles, like once you could see, okay, they're all in that way. It's kind yeah. of boring, but the colorful language is really really fun to see. Um, I know it was a tra- it was tragic, yeah. <laughs> but there's still a script that they but, use and then, uh, yes, yeah. like it's basically the language that that you can uh, you can see in today's North Korean uh, yeah. news reports. Yeah, uh, that that anchor woman have ever yeah yeah, yeah that that was fun, um so the that th- those were the Chinese um sources um, the two publications of the State Sport Commission up to nineteen sixty six and um after nineteen seventy two seventy three, um and the other one was um another collection archival collection that I accessed was um the IOC's archives. Um, I was lucky enough to get a uh, grant mm-hmm. to go there. Um, so you know, two weeks, two two weeks in Switzerland without worrying about you know like overspending. Yeah, I, I was actually working really hard, so I didn't really get to see as much of Switzerland outside of the archive. <laughs> I saw some, but no, not too much. Uh, but it was like living in an expensive postcard. Mm. Um, so. They had a very complete um, documentation of uh, the Asian Games files, and um, they and also of course with uh, you know China's reapplication to join the Olympic movement mm-hmm. um, after the Asian Games admission, so that's what I mainly got from them, and uh, there were also other, you know, uh, minor sources, uh, you know, biographies and. Um, there were also you know non-fictionals. Mm-hmm. They they would only f- fill in certain information that I could verify. But yeah. and is the bulk of your work then coming from those IOC, the Olympic Committee documents? Yes, uh, yeah. I'm currently working on those, uh, and also the Chinese uh, publications. Right. Yeah, okay. they they helped me deal with the first you know two or three chapters, and then uh, the second chapter. No, sorry, the the chapter after. Because, you know, I really couldn't get um, the classified documents about the darkest years. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit here, a little bit there. Yeah. I'm trying to be able to, you know, be objective and um, just be comprehensive when it comes to 
writing document uh, writing the history. And then later on, when it comes to um, reconnecting, of course, there is um, the Henry Kissinger uh, collection um, up, up in Yale, I think, I would say, or oh, Harvard. Oh, gosh, I, I can't For, Further north than Texas. Further north than Texas. You know, it's, oh, it's all a blur. Yeah. Right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, that's for, you know, the ping pong diplomacy, of mm. course. Um, um, and then the IOC files came into play. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, of course, um, I haven't really figured this out, but if the IOC files are not... Uh, are not sufficient for um, the chapter regarding the Montreal Games diplom- di- diplomatic events, I might have to go to Montreal or mm-hmm. Ottawa to try to access some files. The last time I checked, they were, de- they were still classified. Or, you know, you could call them to try to, f- to, to fill in an FOI form mm-hmm. um, to get them declassified. It's, just, it's kind of far away right now. Yeah, I, yeah. I tend to focus on finishing what I can't write at this moment. And... <laughs> And that's probably a good point to end by asking when do you expect to finish your dissertation and will we see you at the BSSH uh, in 2020? Oh God, um, I, I'm trying to finish um, either in May or July. That depends on, again, like I said, uh, if I need to go to Canada hmm. for uh, the documents or not. Um, but I'm There's pre- a wonderful BSSH travel grant for PhD students that you could avail of. Yes, that's I my know. Sh- that's my shameless plug, Ben. Sorry. I know, <laughs> I know. But also, you know, I'm just so swamped with I'm writing. Teasing, I'm teasing. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a good point. Um, so next year I won't be teaching because I got a fellowship uh, for writing. So you know, I um, I'm just going to focus on writing, try to finish whatever I can finish as soon as possible, and get into the last chapter regarding you know the Montreal Olympic Games mm-hmm. and. If there's a need for traveling, I will travel because, you know, who doesn't want to go to Canada? Montreal is wonderful, right? Um, And, you know, just to test the French that I've learned in the past two years, right? Yeah, it's a good good test. For what it's worth. It kind of worked in Lausanne, so... Okay, there you go. That's a good... It's a good indication. Yeah, but you know, for an Asian face, they they just don't... They assume that you don't speak French, so, you know, like... Subverting expectations. Yeah, right? Surprise them. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> yeah, uh, and BSSH. Um, well, you know, um, I went to BSSH in 17 and 19. Huh. Uh, Worcester. Oh, God. When I went to Worcester, do you know? Like, yeah, I, 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 did, I didn't know Worcester was Worcester. Um, mm. So when I was entering the, uh, the, the, the border control, whatever, I told them I'm going to uh, Worcester. And that was really embarrassing. And they didn't even correct me. Yeah. It was later when I knew it was Worcester. Oh my God, they must be laughing at me <laughs> when I passed it. But, you know, um, and uh, I was in, I was in uh, Liverpool this year because, you know, my favorite team was Liverpool. Too bad there was not a, a, a league, a league, league uh, match that weekend. So, you know, I just... Um, flat as soon as I could. I went to <laughs> Ireland, right? I mean, why wouldn't you? Yeah, right. Um, so you know, it's amazing. It's amazing experience. Yeah. So next year, the the thing is, if I could sort, you know, graduation and everything out, mm. I would definitely love to return. And it's going to be London. I th- I heard somewhere, somewhere, someplace near London, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, that that would be really cool. Um, and hopefully, I could you know get a week's uh time to um visit you know the Wimbledon. 
a museum and try to uh, dig into the I International Tennis Federation's archives because I still have an unfinished mission uh, from, you know, back in the days. And I'm pretty sure that draft was really dusted. Yeah. Uh, not dusted, just like full of dust at this moment. Um, yeah, but I'm trying to, uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, reenact the entire picture of like you know how tennis went back to the Olympic Games. Mm. So um, that's the hope. Mm. Yeah. Andrew Howe, man on a mission. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you. Mm-hmm.